the resignation of the Prime Minister from the Tory party leadership was a big decision for him, wasn't it? He took his time over it. He wrestled with it. He sought advice. No doubt he reflected on the the poor results uh, in the polls and all of these things from the close advisors which he had from the opinion uh, within his own party led him uh, to the decision which he announced to us. It's probably a moment that many of us will remember for a long time and and look back on and reflect on and political historians uh, will also evaluate the significance uh, of that moment and of that decision. But one of the things which our Prime Minister didn't say he did was to ask God what he should do. He sought advice. He listened to the opinion of others, the views of his party. But he didn't ask God what he should do. And we understand that, don't we, to a degree within the political sphere, within the the values and philosophies uh, that some politicians have. But this chapter this evening has the the same influences, but this is within the church. Here is a decision being made by logic, by reason, by leadership. And again, they do not ask God what they should do. And as we think of the attributes of the church's windows, or this window, the book of Joshua being a window through which we look into the church and see activities and attributes of the church, uh, you are well aware of the different ones that we have noticed uh, throughout this book, beginning with faithful service in chapter 1, looking last Sabbath evening at church discipline and this morning at God's word. We come by, by, by way of contrast in, in this ninth chapter uh, to see this, this crucial activity of the church, that of prayer, that of doing the very opposite of what verse 14b said that they did. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. So tonight we, we want to think of prayer, congregational and personal prayer, as being a crucial attribute of Christ's church. Prayer is commanded, and this phrase implies this. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now, there's two ways of relating history, isn't there, or relating stories within your life or experiences uh, that you have had. We can give the facts and and leave it there, and, and they the hearer can evaluate those facts and come to their own conclusions or historians sometimes interpret the facts. They they comment about the historical details and it's rare in the Bible for the biblical historian to make a comment. But here is one of those very rare places. It's a reprimand. It's an observation. It's It's a negative appraisal of what the church did at that time. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. In all that they did, in all the influences 
on their decision. This was one thing that they didn't do, one fundamental thing that they didn't do. And the implication is that they should have done it because it was something that was commanded for them to do. This is rooted in Numbers chapter 27 when Joshua was being appointed as the successor to Moses. Discussions were taken about who should succeed Moses and what type of person this should be and and how they should behave. And one of the details in Numbers 27 and verse 21 is that this new leader identified as Joshua would have the facility to know the mind of God. That they could consult the high priest and ask the high priest to inquire from God about major decisions to be taken. And that facility, that opening, that opportunity which Joshua always had lies behind this criticism of the people of Israel in taking a decision without asking counsel from the Lord. It's something they should have done. It's something that they did in the previous chapter, isn't it? As God told Joshua to go and identify who had had transgressed his commands and taking goods from the the city of Jericho. It was not something which Joshua proceeded to do by gathering together the the leaders of of the people. It it was not something he he decided to do by, by a poll, by a survey. It was something he did by direct guidance from God. Using those stones, the Urim and the Thummim, possibly white and colored stones. Possibly when two of the same color of stones were drawn out, that was yes. Possibly when different colored stones were drawn out, that was no. Using the Urim and the Thummim in some way brought them that divine guidance from God. And he narrowed down from, from thousands to, to, to Achan using the guidance of God. But here, As these travelers come to him, he doesn't ask counsel from the Lord. Prayer is something required. Prayer is something commanded of the church as we live our lives, as we serve our God. This is evident in the New Testament, isn't it? In the life of Jesus Christ. Again and again, Christ devotes himself to prayer, seeking his Father's will at his baptism, at his transfiguration, before the cross in Gethsemane. Christ is in prayer, seeking God's strength, guidance, and grace. And in his teaching to his disciples, he he gives those large sections of time to instructing them and, and us how to pray. Prayer was a dominant feature in the life and in the teaching of Jesus Christ. And this spilled over into the behavior of the New Testament church. 
before Pentecost and at Pentecost and after Pentecost, the church is praying. Prayer is something required of us, something expected of us. And in this comment in verse 14, it is assumed they they didn't do something which was required of them as the people of God. But but a second implication in, in this verse is that prayer is effective. That prayer is effective. The the, the comment that they didn't ask counsel of the Lord implies that if they had asked counsel of the Lord, they would not have made that mistake and made a treaty with the Gibeonites who had come from just a few miles up the road. Prayer is effective. That as we ask guidance from God, as we bring our petitions and requests unto our Heavenly Father, this is something which He hears and answers and interacts with. It's not just to be a traditional exercise within our church services or our daily lives, but rather prayer is effective. And the Old Testament church learned from this mistake of Joshua and the leaders of their time, didn't they? You remember David in 1 Samuel 23 when he was hiding in the cave of Adullam just three miles south of the city of Keilah. And the Philistines were coming in harvest time and stealing all the grain. It's no new thing that the Russians are doing. They were doing it in David's time and stealing the grain away from the city of Keilah. And the natural thing for for David to do would be to defend his fellow countrymen. But he prays. And he asks God for guidance and direction. Should he go or should he not go? And God says, go down to Keilah and you will deliver the city. And he goes down and he delivers the city. And then he hears that Saul and his army is coming to Keilah. A city with gates and bars. A a fortified city. And the natural assumption of David would be, well, I have preserved this people. They will defend me from Saul. But he prays and he asks God, will he be safe within this city? And God's answer this time is, no, you won't. They will deliver you up to Saul. You need to flee from this city. Prayer is effective. The church learned and looked back on this this defect in Joshua and the the leader's life and and they they, they altered this and, and David in his decisions, comes to God in prayer, seeking his direction and his grace. But thirdly, this statement in verse 14b indicates that prayer is neglected. Prayer is commanded, Numbers 27. Prayer is effective. The implication here, if they had prayed, they would have been guided and preserved from their error But thirdly, prayer is neglected by them. They didn't pray. And what influenced them not to pray here? Well, there's two things that that seem to prevent them from seeing the need for prayer here. One is their their experience. Uh, We see in the 
the first half of the verse. The men took some of their provisions. Now, there's a lot of comment about this phrase, the men, who who were these men? Is that the Gibeonites or is that the leaders of Israel? I think it's the leaders of Israel. Calvin thinks the phrase took some means that they had a a ceremonial meal, a meal uh, to to bond the treaty. I I think it refers more to they examined the provisions of the Gibeonites. So they took their sandals, they took their bread, took their wineskins, they took those clothes which the Gibeonites presented to them, claiming that they were old and they had come on a long, long journey. And the, the leaders, they examined them. They used their experience, their sense of touch, that their rational powers, that their eyes, their mind. And they concluded, based on their experience, that these people were, far from, were from a far country. And it was this experience of theirs, their their own logic, their own thinking, their own reasoning, their own wisdom, their own knowledge that kept them back from seeking God's guidance. To them it was obvious, to them it was clear that, that what these people were saying was true and right. There was no need to pray or to ask God for guidance in this case. The answer was obvious to them. alongside of their experience was the biblical injunction in Deuteronomy 20. In that chapter, God gave direction to his people as they would go into the land of Canaan that they were to destroy all the people in the cities within the land of Canaan. But cities outside of the land of Canaan, they were to offer them peace. And if the people in the cities outside of the land of Canaan agreed to peace with Israel, then those people would become the servants, the slaves of the people of Israel. And it appears that the Gibeonites were aware of this law in Deuteronomy chapter 20, as it says later on in verse number 24. So they have this story, even though they're three miles uh, or or three days journey up the road, that they have come from a far country. So that the people of Israel will offer terms of peace to them and not destroy them. They're willing to be their servants and their slaves as long as their lives will be preserved. And on the basis of this knowledge which the leaders of Israel had, their own experience of looking at the goods that were presented to them and examining them, and also this double command of God in Deuteronomy 20 regarding the cities in Canaan and the cities outside of Canaan, they accepted the story of the Gibeonites and they made peace with them. Prayer is commanded, but not obeyed in this case. Prayer is effective, but not availed of by the leaders in this instance. Prayer is neglected because they use their own rational powers only and they misapplied the commands of God in Deuteronomy 20. But lastly, God is sovereign. 
there was some discussion then about what they should do when they discovered that the Gibeonites just lived up the road and were part of the clan of the Hivites as they inspired his story and emphasizes in this text part of those groups that should be destroyed by the people of God. Now the people of Israel, they are displeased with the leaders for the decision that they have taken, probably not out of pious reasons, probably more that they wanted the plunder of the Gibeonites than that they wanted uh, to have them live. But Joshua stood his ground. I I think he makes a distinction which I think appears in other parts of the Bible and in our lives that we can make a a rash vow to God. We can promise God something rashly, perhaps in a moment of deep danger, But perhaps that thing that we promised when our life seemed to be coming to an end was rash. And we find that we're unable to fulfill it. Well, Leviticus chapter 5 had an offering for that. That we could come to God and tell him that we had promised him in a rash way and we can't keep our promise Forgive us, and there's forgiveness promised in Leviticus 5 for that. Jephthah in Judges, he made a vow to God that was rash. And if his Bible knowledge was better, he would have known about Leviticus 5 and he could have got out of his rash vow and not have to sacrifice his daughter. But this wasn't a vow to God, this was a vow to man. And Joshua rightly recognized that though it was wrong, though they were tricked, though the other party was deceptive, he had given a promise and he would have to keep it. And so he applied the rules of Deuteronomy 20 of a city outside of Canaan to this situation. And the Gibeonites, for the rest of their existence, would draw wood for the burnt altar at the entrance to the tabernacle and the temple, and they would draw water for the laver at the entrance to the tabernacle. What a taxing job that was. In Deuteronomy 29, there is a a list of roles and jobs and statuses within the nation of Israel. A long list and right down at the very bottom in the 11th verse of Deuteronomy 29. It's those who cut wood and those who draw the water. The lowest position in the nation. And yet... It was a position in which the Gibeonites heard the gospel. Every time they drew their cart of wood up at the tabernacle, they saw that type of Christ, the sacrifice on the bronze altar. 
Every time they drew their wagon up filled with water to the tabernacle, they saw the laver, that type of cleansing and forgiveness. And here is God's sovereignty and, and will come. You'll, you'll read sometime in, in Nehemiah in chapter 3, after the exile, about a thousand years after this treaty was made. And the Gibeonites are working shoulder to shoulder with God's people in building the walls of Jerusalem. This is our God taking the mistake of his church and using it to bring those who didn't deserve his grace outside of the, the covenant community to a knowledge, a saving knowledge, it would seem, of himself. Prayer is commanded then. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. It's to be part of our congregation, part of our lives. And yet we, we struggle with it, don't we? We know it's commanded, but we struggle. And one of the, the, the elements of that struggle is that we see little change. We pray for our town. We pray for unconverted people in our families. We pray for political situations. And sometimes, to, to our understanding, there is little change. But the change associated with prayer it's not always external. Often the change that God designs in prayer is in ourselves. And the transformation it brings to the Christian. As we spend time with God, as we plead with God, our faith is strengthened. Our mind is purified. Our love and trust is deepened in his character and in his ways. We're humbled before him as we depend upon him in our prayer. The change, the refinement, the alteration is often in the person who is praying. The, the winner, the female winner of Wimbledon, eh, well known to us all now, <laughs> I'll just call her Ilana and leave the second name to, to other people to try and pronounce. I've done enough pronouncing big names today uh, uh, already. Uh, but one of the interesting features in her journey is that her, her career only took off when at the age of 20 she employed a fitness trainer to join her team. And that constant element in her team brought change to her. And for you and I to have prayer constantly in our life, in our congregation, it will change other things. It will change people's lives outside of us. But it will also bring an amazing transformation to ourselves. George Mueller uh, was an incredible man of prayer, wasn't he? Uh, the five orphanages which he founded in, in Bristol, uh, caring for 10,000 children in his lifetime and, and then carrying on uh, beyond that. <laughs> but one of the incredible things about George Mueller 
is what he says in his diary here. He says, no man on earth can say that I ever asked him for a penny. We have no committees, he says, no collectors, no voting, no endowments. All has come in answer to believing prayers. My trust has been in God alone. While I am praying, he says, he speaks to this one and another on this continent and on that to send us help. Imagine living like that. Imagine the change if we lived like that. The deepening of our trust. The wise stewardship of funds that came. The gratitude to God for his provision. We we think of prayer changing other things, but prayer is so fundamental to the church because a crucial dimension of it is that it changes us. Commanded. Effective. Prayer is effective. This is the historian's comment. They missed out. They would have been preserved from this mistake if they just prayed, if they just asked God for guidance. They did all other things. They used their minds. They got counsel. But the crucial thing they overlooked, if they'd asked, they would have received because prayer is effective. Hannah receives her son Samuel An answer to prayer. Daniel and his friends receive wisdom. An answer to prayer. The leper receives healing. An answer to prayer. Professor John Currid, professor in Reformed Theological Seminary in in America, writes a a really gripping and useful commentary on the book of Joshua. Uh, And in it he, he includes this observation about answered prayer in the life of Robert Murray McShane. You you know that Robert Murray McShane was sent uh, from his home church in Dundee uh, out to Palestine uh, to look at uh, outreach to the Jewish people. He left his congregation under the, the pastorate of William C. Burns. And while he was away in Palestine, revival broke out in the Dundee congregation. Broke out on a Sabbath day. And what was interesting, John Currid points out is that on that very day, oblivious to, to, to Robert Murray McShane, he put in his diary that he had spent the day in prayer for his congregation. Here is the the implied criticism of the Old Testament church here. They didn't pray. And they made a mistake. If they had prayed, God would have guided them. Prayer is effective. Let us pray. Prayer is neglected. Why is it neglected by us? It's not always because we're too busy, is it? 
because we're too big. We consider that we're able to handle it, that we can manage, that our our powers of observation and reasoning are strong and insightful, just as the leaders did here. They weren't too busy. They were too big. Martin Luther, he wrote that he was more afraid of the Pope of self than of any Pope in Rome. Self-trust, self-dependence, self-reliance. Not dependence on God. There's a session we've tried to encourage that dependence on God by planning a week of prayer in September as we begin the new church year to come together before the deacons make any decision or the session meet or any sermons are preached or any Sabbath school classes are held or any notion matter takes place. That we will show God that we need him. We're trusting in him. We want him to bless us in our church year. Lastly, God is sovereign. What 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 an amazing outcome. What what a God. And in the next chapter, you'll have to wait till the end of July, till, till we get to chapter 10. To see how, how God forgives this mistake, this sin, and he overrules this sins. Then in Nehemiah, how the Gibeonites are, are brought in to the church, how this sovereign God overrules the, the, the wrongs of his people and, and even of the godless to express his mercy and his love. One of the striking instances of this in, in church history it took place in the, in the 1700s in Yorkshire, in the, the town of Rotterham. And George Whitfield had been preaching there, and it had been a, a hard crowd. It's so difficult, such was the hatred, the, the mockery, the interruptions in his sermons, that he nearly decided never to go back again until he heard of numerous striking conversions. One of them was of George Thorpe, who with his three companions met in the local pub. And this was common throughout the the town of of Rotterdam to mock Whitfield and Christianity and the Bible. And on this occasion, his three companions and himself had bet each other who could mimic Whitfield the best. Each took a turn and standing on the table in the local pub and mimicking Whitfield. When it came, Mr. Thorpe's turn, he rose up onto the table, claiming to his companions and those in the pub that that he would beat them and win this bet. And in due course, a, a Bible was handed to him. And he opened it randomly at Luke 13, verse 3. Except you repent, you shall perish. There was the man mocking the gospel, mimicking a servant of Christ. But in that moment of sin, the Spirit of God came upon him and saved him. He went on to become a minister of the gospel, our sovereign God. 
the error of his church. It's grace where sin abounds. Grace superabounds. And we trust in him for others and for our own mistakes in our lives. And so we leave church this evening determined to pray over every decision of our life. The new house, the new job, the new relationship, the new day. That God will help us in our decisions and guide us in our ways.